All right, good evening. It's good to see you all tonight. We're in Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6, and we're in the Lord's Prayer. We've been taking these kind of uh, one week at a time, um, which, you know, we taught through this maybe in 2015 or 16, something like that. Uh, long, it seemed like a long time ago. It was when the stones first came to the church, whenever that, it was 2015. Uh, so anyway, I've been going back through those notes and just summarizing them. And so I thought, well, it, it's good for us to be reminded of, of, these, of these things because um, it's important for us to pray and to know how to pray and what to pray. And in these statements, there are, uh, there's much more than just the simple statements, right? They're given in very short, uh, simple statements, but there's a lot of meaning there, a lot of content that can be unpacked uh, in terms of all the implications. And we mentioned that last time, it's very similar to the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are very short statements, and that's for the purpose of easy, ease to remember, right? Ease to remember, to display publicly, to pronounce, uh, but then there's so much there in terms of implications and all the things that are implied within those commandments. And that's the same with the Lord's Prayer as well. So there's a lot to unfold in each and every one of these. And knowing that uh, we probably, it's been uh, a while since we've heard that, that we are going rather slowly through these, but that's, that's fine. Okay, so Matthew chapter 6, let's read verses 9 to 15. Matthew 6. Verse 9 to 15, and then we'll pray and have our Bible study. There it says, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also for have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time to meet together tonight, and Lord, to open your word and to study it. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us, Lord, and uh, how it is that we ought to pray. Lord, that you would give to us a greater desire uh, to pray. Lord, that we would see our need uh, for you. Lord, knowing that it is through our prayers that we are daily displaying our dependence and reliance on you, Lord, our submission to your will. So, Father, we ask that you would uh, conform our will to yours. And, Lord, we do ask that your will would be done in our, in our lives, Lord, as it is done in heaven. Lord, knowing that there amongst the host of heaven, the holy angels, they always do your will. They do it perfectly. They always obey you in all things. We know as well that our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, when he was here on the earth, uh, that he always did the will of his Father in heaven. He was an obedient son. And so, Lord, we know as well that this is your will for us, uh, that we would obey you and that we would walk in your commandments. So, Lord, we pray that you would help us in this regard, Lord, that we would be faithful to you. Lord, we pray that you would forgive us when we fail and that, Lord, you would renew us to repentance uh, and that, Lord, we would press on until we enter into the full manifestation of your kingdom uh, in the life to come. So, Lord, help us tonight to understand 
and what it means for your kingdom to come on this earth and for your will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, teach us and we pray that we would desire these things greatly. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so we are on the second of the petitions of the uh, Lord's Prayer. Uh, we looked last week at what it means for us to hallow the name of God or for God's name to be glorified on this earth. And then tonight we'll look at verse 10, which is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And again, we are reminded that the first two prayers have to do with God's glory and with God's will, with God's kingdom coming on earth, right? So before he moves on, not that there isn't a place to pray for our own needs and to pray for our own lives. Of course, we need to do that. He's teaching us to do that. But chiefly, we need to be concerned with the glory of God and with the will of God, right? And, and that's why these things come first. The same again as the Ten Commandments. Begin with our duty, our responsibility toward God, and then it moves to our duty and responsibility toward our fellow man. Because God has to be chief. He has to be supreme in all things. Uh, not that there isn't a place to love our fellow man. We know that we're supposed to do that. But God must be supreme in all things. And so it is here. Yes, there is a place to pray for our own needs, for the needs of our family, our friends, for those that we love and know. But most importantly, we need to have our mind conformed to the will of God and to the glory of God. That that should be what is chief on our mind and our thoughts and our desires is that God's name would be glorified and that his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we'll look there then at verse 10. Verse 10 where it says, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The first thing we need to define or that we need to understand is that God is a king. Right? God describes himself as a king and he has a kingdom. So we have to understand and know what is the kingdom of God, right? What is the kingdom of God as it is in its present state? And then what is the kingdom of God as it will be revealed in its final state? Because this prayer has to do with both of these. It has to do both with the expansion of the kingdom of God now in this present life, but also for the full manifestation of it that won't be realized until the return of Christ, right? Because we have to see and understand that in its present form, the kingdom of God is in a mysterious secret. It is in a hidden way in this present earth. But ultimately, on the day of the Lord, it will be revealed in all of its glory and all of its majesty. And then it will cover the earth as the water covers the sea. So there is the kingdom of God. So we need to understand what is the nature of this kingdom so that we can rightfully know how to pray for it to come on this earth and for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So first, we need to see that God has this kingdom and he's given the kingdom to his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the king of kings and Lord of lords. The kingdom of God has been given to the son, right, to Christ, and he is the rightful ruler of this present world. He is the king who is over all kings, the Lord who is over all lords. This is as it says in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Jesus says there, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So all authority belongs to Christ, right? It is all his. The world belongs to Christ. And it's just a matter of time until that is known and seen, right? Visibly, physically by all people, right? At this present time, it's hidden from people. Right? Some people see it and some people don't. 
Though it's true, regardless of whether or not people recognize it or see it, these are truths regardless of what men acknowledge and see. Christ is the king of the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll read verses 24 to 28. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 says, Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. So there he, Christ, must reign until all of his enemies are under his feet. When the end comes, he, Christ, will hand the kingdom to God the Father. He will present it to God the Father. He is the king, and then he will present it as an offering to God the Father, showing his submission to God, so that God will be all in all. Right? Christ presents it to God. Christ is the one ruling and reigning over it under the will of God in submission to God the Father. So Christ is the king of this kingdom, that has been appointed to him by the Father. He's reigning until he subjects all of his enemies under his feet, and then at that point, he will present this kingdom back to God the Father. Secondly, we need to understand that the kingdom of God is not of this world, right? It's not of this world. It is in this world, but it is not like the kingdoms of this world. It is different in nature than the kingdoms of this world. These present worldly kingdoms are visible. They're physical. They, de they depend on earthly power, right? Uh, worldly rule, worldly glory, worldly honor. But Christ's kingdom is not like that at all. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, and his kingdom is considered to be weak, foolish, worthless, useless by those who are sophisticated in this present life. Right, the 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 uh, the wise men of this present age, the powerful of this present age, they consider the kingdom of Christ to be worthless, to be detestable, to be nothing. This is as it was in his own generation. He was the stone that the builders rejected. When they saw Christ, there was nothing in him that was appealing to them. They didn't want any part of his person, of his work, of his kingdom. But this stone, this person who was rejected by the builders, God has made him the chief cornerstone in which the entire kingdom of God is built upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. And ultimately, one day, they're going to see that this stone that they rejected is the greatest. He's going to fall upon them and he's going to crush them and they're going to bow before Christ and they will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All of them will, even those who crucified him, even Pilate, even Herod, uh, Annas and uh, Ananias and uh, 
uh, Caiaphas, they will all bow before Christ and be forced to recognize that he indeed is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John chapter 18, John chapter 18, verse 36. John 18, 36 says, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? So here we see a couple of things. One, first, skepticism, uh, agnostics are not new to the present age. Wasn't Pilate a skeptic? Isn't he an agnostic? What is truth? We can't even know truth. This idea of this relativism, pluralism, it's prevalent. It's been around since the very beginning of time. That's what Pilate is, right? How can we even know anything about the truth? So that's one thing. But Primarily, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, right? It's not of this present world. It's not like the kingdoms that you see in this world that are built upon the power of man, the wisdom of man, the ingenuity of man, right? That conquer and dominate and control and are about riches and wealth and power and glory and honor in this present world. His doesn't have anything to do with that type of stuff, right? Because typically the kingdoms of this world do they promote righteousness or sin? Usually it's sin, right? That's what they're promoting. They're not promoting those things that are bring glory to God, that are good and wholesome and righteous and true. But Christ's kingdom is not like those things at all. His primarily has to do with salvation, with the forgiveness of sins, right? With the glory of God, with righteousness within his people, right? And it doesn't lead to worldly glory and power, but it's humility, right? It's meekness, it's quietness, it's godliness, right? This is the way that his subjects conduct themselves in this present life. But he doesn't deny that he is a king. Pilate asks him, so you are a king? He says, yes, I am a king, but not like the kings of this world, right? His kingdom is of a different nature. Also, Luke chapter 17, Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Luke 17, 20. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So there, notice that the Pharisees, they know about the kingdom of God. So it's not some new concept to them. Jesus is constantly talking about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, right? He uses these terms interchangeably. Matthew uses kingdom of heaven. Luke and Mark typically use kingdom of God, but it's the same thing, referring to the same thing. So this concept of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven, this isn't some new novel concept that no one had ever heard before, right? They know and understand these things. They're expecting the kingdom of God. They're waiting for the kingdom of God. They know that the Messiah is coming, and that he's going to be the one who rules over all things. 
So they're expecting this and they're asking him, when is it going to come? And he's telling them, it's not coming like you think it's going to come. You think it's going to be in these displays of worldly power, worldly pomp, worldly glory, but it's not coming in those ways. And you're not going to say, look, there it is over there or here it is over here, right? When you see it displayed in that way, because the kingdom of God is clothed with humility, with weakness, with suffering, right? This was the case with Christ, with foolishness is what Christ was clothed with, according to the people of this world. Not according to God. According to God, he was the wisdom of God. But according to man, he was a fool. Right? According to God, he is the power of God. According to man, he is weakness. But the weakness of God is greater than the power of man. And the foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom of man. And this was seen in the person of Christ. So here he tells them, it's not coming the way that you think, the way that you're expecting. It's already here in the midst of you. And how was it there in the midst of them? Well, who's standing right in front of them? The King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The King of the Kingdom of God. The greatest King to ever walk the face of this earth was standing in front of them and they couldn't see. They couldn't see His glory. God incarnate in human flesh standing in front of them and they could not see it, right? Because they were blind. They were blind to these things. Okay, Matthew 13. Matthew 13, we won't read all of this because the whole chapter is dealing with this. It's parables related to the kingdom of God. So it's the whole chapter, and we'll get there in due time, right? Because we're already in Matthew. So we'll be dealing with this more thoroughly, but we'll just read a few verses Matthew chapter 13, notice verse 11. Jesus answered them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So there, mysteries. Mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Something mysterious that is granted to the disciples, but it's not granted to those who are outside, right? to those who don't understand. So there are things that believers can see and know about the kingdom of heaven that unbelievers cannot see and know because the mysteries have not been revealed to them. This is why it's hidden. It's secret. It's mysterious in this way, right? It's given to some, but not to others. It's given to the remnant, but not to the majority of people. Also, verse 19 says, When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, and does not understand that the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. Here in describing the parable of the soils, here the word, the preaching of the gospel is called the word of the kingdom, the word of the kingdom, right? And those who believe the word of the kingdom are members of the kingdom. Those who reject the word of the kingdom are not members of the kingdom of God. Also verse 24. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, uh, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The slave said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, 
For while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest, and in the time of the harvest I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. So there, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field, and an enemy came and sowed weeds, tares, amongst the good seed. That's how it is in this present world. You have the good seed, you have the believers, and the believers don't all live in one location. Whenever they are converted, God does not transport them to one spot, and they all live within this region, and then all the unbelievers are in another region. But how does it happen? They grow alongside one another. There's a believer in this town, two or three, and then there's two or 3,000 unbelievers, and they live right next to each other, right? And they grow alongside each other until the end when the angels come and gather the believers into the barn, and then they take the wicked and they burn them in fire at the end of the age. So the separation between those who belong to the kingdom and those who do not belong, the final permanent separation does not happen until the day of judgment. Right. There is a separation that happens now, oh, yeah. right? because isn't there an obvious distinction between wheat and a tear? They can tell the difference. They know that this is a piece of wheat and this is a piece of tear over here. But they're not separated until the harvest, until the day of judgment. They grow alongside together. Also, we need to understand that this is the best kingdom to be a part of. The best kingdom to be a part of. Isn't it true that whenever there is a prosperous nation, a prosperous kingdom, that many people want to come to that kingdom? Isn't that what's happened in America for many years? People are not dying to migrate to Somalia. They're not beating down the doors of Ethiopia. No one wants to go to North Korea. There's some people I'd like to send to North Korea, but no one is going over there, uh, scaling walls, swimming rivers, oceans, right? Uh, sneaking in to get into North Korea or any of these other wretched places on earth. But where do they want to come? They want to come to America. And why do they want to come to America? Prosperity. It's a land of prosperity because they know they can have a better life here. And that's why they want to come to America. Well, the kingdom of God is better than America. It's better than any kingdom of this present world. And if people will do the things that they do, I mean, you, we realize that those people who are coming and making that trek across Mexico, across South America, coming through the Darien Gap. I mean, people coming from all over the world at great expense and great danger and hazard to themselves, to their family, exposing themselves to many evil things just for a chance to get into America. Well, then how much more are we to strive to enter into the kingdom of God? Since it is a far greater kingdom than America, if they do it for worldly prosperity, then shouldn't we strive for the glories of Christ, for the spiritual riches that will be ours in Christ. 1 Kings chapter 10. 1 Kings chapter 10. And verse 8. This is the queen of the south. After she sees Solomon's kingdom, 
and she hears the wisdom of Solomon, this is her exclamation. 1 Kings 10, verse 8. How blessed are your men. How blessed are these your servants who stand before you continually and hear your wisdom. Her conclusion was, your people, your servants, how blessed are these people to be in your presence, to hear your wisdom, to be a part of your kingdom, and to enjoy the greatness of it. Then also, Luke eleven thirty one. 31. Right, we have to take 1 Kings 10, 8 with Luke eleven thirty one. As great as Solomon's kingdom was, it was simply a shadow and a type of a greater kingdom and of a greater king, right? Just a glimpse, a small glimpse of the glory of Christ. Luke eleven thirty one, The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So if Solomon's men and people were blessed to be in his kingdom, to hear his wisdom, and Solomon isn't Christ, someone greater than Solomon is here, and who is that? Our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the kingdom that we're in. Then how much more blessed are we to be in the kingdom of Christ? This is the greatest blessing God can bestow upon any man. Amen. This is the blessing that we should want to bless our children with, our grandchildren with, our family with, that they would be members of the kingdom of Christ. Right? This is what we should strive for, for ourselves and for our families. Okay, also another point in terms of the kingdom, John chapter 3. John chapter 3. If this kingdom is so great, then why isn't everyone <coughs> striving to enter in? Right? Why isn't everyone becoming a part of it? John chapter 3, verse 3. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. So unless you're born again, you can't enter the kingdom of God. You can't even see the kingdom of God. That's the problem. In the natural state, people, men, cannot see the kingdom of Christ, the glory of that kingdom, and that's why they want nothing to do with it, right? That's why he's the stone that the builders rejected, right? If they would have known who he was spiritually, truly, then they wouldn't have put him to death, but they didn't know who he was because they couldn't see it. They didn't have eyes to see, ears to hear, or a heart to understand. So, these things we have to understand about the kingdom of God, the nature of the kingdom of God, so that we can then pray properly for its advancement, for it to come on earth and for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. So how then should we pray in light of these truths? How should we pray in terms of the coming of God's kingdom? Well, first, 
we should pray for God's kingdom to advance in this life, in the present, hidden, mysterious, secret way, that God's kingdom would be advancing in this present world while the world is still being ruled by the devil, right? by the kingdom of Satan. The kingdom of God is advancing in this world as men are being converted, as they are believing the gospel, they're being transported out of the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness, and into the kingdom of Christ, into the kingdom of light. So for us to pray for God's kingdom to come is to pray that the gospel would go forth in power and that God would use it to convert men, to bring them out of darkness and into light. That wicked men, rebellious men, would submit themselves to Christ and kiss the Son, lest they perish in the way. Right? This goes along with what we mentioned earlier. Whether men recognize it or not, right? it doesn't matter. Christ is the King. He is the King. All authority has been given to Him, whether or not men recognize it or not. One day they're going to. But as it presently is, do the majority of people in this world do they recognize the kingship of Christ? No, they don't recognize it at all. They don't see it. But does that mean Christ isn't ruling? No, he is ruling. He does have dominion. Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. This is what Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar came to understand in some part after his humiliation. Daniel chapter 4. Verse 34, Daniel 4, 34 says, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? So there, his dominion is everlasting. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. God's kingdom endures. It remains. Though, again, most people don't see it. They don't recognize it. Most kings don't recognize it. Every day, in so many ways, we see God's law being broken time and time again, right? All over the place. So it is true that God is a king. He has his kingdom. It, his dominion never ends. It goes on for generation and for generation. But most men reject this truth. They do not submit to this kingdom, but they are in rebellion against it. This is Psalm 2, verses 1 to 3. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? They plot a vain thing, they speak against God who's in heaven and they want to burst his bonds. They want to throw off the yoke of God. They don't want to be in subjection to God. So though God is the ruler, most people are in rebellion to God. So when we pray for his kingdom to come, we are praying for God to take those rebellious men according to his will. He's not going to do it for all of them, but according to his will, those who have been chosen by God, and to subdue them. Subdue their wild, wicked, rebellious hearts, transform them, convert them, 
Give them a new heart that is submissive to God, that willingly submits to God, that obeys God, that submits to the kingdom of Christ. That's the end of Psalm 2, that they would kiss the Son, lest they perish in the way, right? Because blessed are all who take refuge in Him. So that's what we're praying. God, convert sinners. Convert sinners. That's a good prayer for us to pray. Convert sinners, take them out of darkness, bring them into light. Make them not be rebellious, but instead make them submissive to you through salvation, right? Through salvation. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1 verse 13 says, for he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's what Christ has done for us. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. That's the kingdom of Satan and transferred us. So out of the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his son. And now we are subjects of the kingdom of Christ. And we want to obey him. We want to do his will. We want to worship him. We want to please him. Right? We're not raging against him anymore. The nations are doing that. We're not doing that. Right? Or we better not be. Because if we are, then we're not subjects. Right? We're not subjects. Then we are rebels. We're uh, hypocrites and we're false to what we say that we are. So what we want is for what is true in reality, the kingship of Christ. He is king over all, over all people for that to be recognized and realized in the life of men, that men would see this, recognize it, and that they would then submit to the kingdom of Christ. This is what is necessary for the preaching of the gospel. Luke chapter 1. This is what Zechariah knew and understood about his son John, or what was proclaimed to him by the angel. Luke 1, 17. Luke 1, 17. It says, It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Right? In our natural state, in the domain of darkness, we're disobedient. But then when we're transferred to the kingdom of his son, we have the attitude of the righteous. That's what John was sent to do. So for this to happen then, it necessitates the preaching of the gospel, that the word of God would go forth in power. So when we're praying for God's kingdom to come, we are praying for God to convert men, and we know for that to happen, then it necessitates the gospel being proclaimed, being preached. So we should pray for God to send forth workers, to, for God to raise up workers, to raise up men, to give boldness to us so that wherever we go, we are proclaiming the word of Christ. We're preaching the gospel of Christ to those who are perishing. So we should pray for the external preaching of the word of God to take place. Second Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 
and verse 1. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord will spread rapidly and be glorified just as it did also with you, and that we will be rescued from perverse and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. We have confidence in the Lord concerning you, that you are doing and will continue to do what we command. May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness of Christ. So there, he's asking for prayer, that the church would pray for him and those who are with him, his companions, so that the word of the Lord would speed rapidly, spread rapidly. That's what he wants. He wants the word to spread. Because in that, as it's spreading, the people who hear it would be like the Thessalonica, the people of Thessalonica. Because when they heard it, they received it as it was. Not as a word of men, but as the word of God. So praying that it would spread. And we ought to pray in this way as well. So when we're praying for his kingdom to come, we are praying for the word of God to go forth into the world and for men to hear the preaching of the gospel. Also with that, we are praying for the spirit to work, for the right. internal work of the spirit, right? Because those are the two things that are necessary. There has to be the external preaching of the gospel for a person to be saved, right? No one can believe, no one can be saved without faith and no one can have faith without hearing the gospel, right? Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. You have to hear the word of Christ in order to believe the word of Christ and in order to be saved. So there has to be the external preaching of the gospel, but also with that, there is necessary the internal work of the spirit, the spirit taking the word and using it to convert men. This is what we read earlier from John chapter three, right? You have to be born again. If you're, unless you're born of water and the spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So the, there has to be the internal working of the Spirit in the hearts of men that uses the word of Christ to convert them, right? This is the way it always works. The Spirit of Christ using the word of Christ to create children of God. This is the way. And so we should pray for the power of the Spirit to go with the preaching of the gospel for the salvation of sinners. So when we pray for his kingdom to come, in regards to the world, this is what we're praying for. We're praying for salvation. Salvation, a turning of the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous. That God would subdue wicked men, rebellious men, and make them loyal subjects to the kingdom of Christ. So in relation to the lost, to the world, this is how we are praying. But also for his kingdom to come, we're praying for the church as well right, for the church, for those who are already believers. Because we need the kingdom of God to, of, to come in our own lives and to progress and advance in our own lives. Because it's not merely about the quantity of people, it's also about the quality, the quality of the subjects of the kingdom of God. And we are in that kingdom, but are we perfectly loyal subjects to Christ? Not in this life, because what do we still have to deal with? the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have the flesh, and it keeps us from doing what we want to do, right? We are his children, 
We are his servants, his slaves. We want to obey him perfectly, but we don't have the ability to. So we need to pray in our own lives for God's kingdom to come in us in terms of maturity and in terms of our brothers and sisters in Christ that we would all be advancing and progressing in relation to our godliness, in relationship to our submission to Christ, that his kingdom would be realized in our lives in our, and in our families more and more and more each and every day as we advance on toward the kingdom of God. So that's what we want, his rule in our lives to be manifested more and more and more as we grow and as we mature in the Christian life over the course of our life. John chapter 15. John 15. John 15, verse 1. Says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. In every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it so that it may bear more fruit. So there, every branch that doesn't bear fruit, right? This would be the person that claims to be a Christian, but bears no fruit. He's going to cut that one off, right? He's going to cut them off, throw them away, burn them in the fire. But then there are branches that do bear good fruit, but what do they need to have done to them? They need to be pruned, pruned. The dead parts need to be removed so that they bear more good fruit, so that they're more fruitful. And this is how it is in this present life. From conversion until our death, we need to be pruned so that we produce more and more good fruit because no one is perfect. No one has advanced to perfect conformity to Christ, and none of us will ever advance to that in this present life, no matter what anyone else ever says. Anyone who claims that they are perfect, that they have perfect maturity, that they are sinless, you know they're a liar. They are a liar because it is not possible in this life. Even the Apostle Paul says that he wasn't perfect. And I can promise you, he's more perfect than any of these people in what they claim and what they say about themselves. So we need maturity. We need the kingdom of God to come in our own lives so that we are more obedient to Christ, right? We subject ourselves to his will more and more and more, and we are conformed to the image of Christ. So when we're praying, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we need to pray in regards to ourselves. In regards to ourselves, and also in regard to our to the church, to our brothers and sisters in Christ, that this would be true of all of us. Also, in relationship to the church, we should pray for protection from our enemies, protection from our enemies. For his kingdom to come, we should pray that God would protect us from the enemies of the kingdom of God. Isn't it true that every kingdom has enemies? There are adversaries that want to overthrow that kingdom, that want to infiltrate that kingdom, that, that want to bring it to its demise. Well, this is no different as well. This is the way it is with the kingdom of God. And we need to pray that God would protect us. Isn't that what the Apostle Paul was praying for and asking them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3? Not only to pray that the word of God would spread rapidly, but that God would protect them from evil and wicked men because not everyone has faith. 
Also, he does this in Romans chapter 15, that he prays that they would be delivered from unbelievers in Judea, right? That God would save them and protect them because they knew when they went to Jerusalem, they were going into the lion's den and that God would protect them from these evil and wicked men. So every kingdom has its enemies. And when we're praying for the kingdom to come, we are praying that God would ultimately subdue all of his enemies. Isn't that what we read earlier from 1 Corinthians 15? He must reign until he has put all of his enemies under his feet, right? For the kingdom to come in its full and final form, all of his enemies must be subdued. And those enemies are present in this life and they are raging against the church, against the people of God. They want to destroy the kingdom of God as it is in this present life. Satan, the world, the, the world, the flesh, the devil. They want to destroy the kingdom of God. So we should pray that God would preserve and that God would protect the kingdom of God from all of these threats. Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. There, until I make your enemies, your enemies, a footstool for your feet. Does Christ have enemies? Yes. He had enemies in his life. He still has enemies today, even there at the right hand of God. Will we have enemies? Yes, we will. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew 10, verse 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. So there, he, he is saying that it's possible that we will have enemies even in our own household. So those who are members of the kingdom will have enemies rise up against them in this life. Also, Acts chapter 4. Acts 4, verse 23. Acts 4, 23. says, When they had been released, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard this, they lifted their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence, while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. So there, they recognize that Jesus had his enemies, 
and they're the ones that put him to death. But now they've turned against the church. They, they have the same enemies as well. And they're praying for God to take note of their threats, see their threats against us, and then give us boldness to continue speaking your word with power. Be with us, bless us, help us, continue to work through us and spread your kingdom. So praying for protection from those who would seek to destroy them. Now, these enemies, these enemies are threefold, threefold. First, the devil, the devil and his demons, his minions. These are spiritual unseen enemies, right? Just as we talked about Sunday concerning angels, holy angels that observe and witness what is taking place in our worship. So we know as well that there are unholy angels. There are evil spirits, demons, and the devil who hate Christ, who hate Christ's people. They hate the church. And that our battle is ultimately not against flesh and blood, but against principalities. It is against these spiritual enemies. They are our chief and ultimate enemy, not our only enemy, because we also have wicked people to deal with, but, but the one behind all of it, the instigator of all this, is the devil and his demons. And there are many of them, and they hate us. So we should pray that God would protect us from the devil, from his schemes, that we would be aware of his schemes, that we wouldn't be gullible, that we wouldn't be duped by him, by his demons, and the things that they want to do. Revelation chapter 12. Revelation 12 and verse 17 says, So the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Then also chapter 13 verse 7 says, it was also given him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority over every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to him. All who dwell on the earth will worship him. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the lamb who has been slain. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. If anyone is destined for captivity, to captivity he goes. If anyone kills with the sword, with the sword he must be killed. Here is the perseverance and faith of the saints. So there it's given to the dragon, to the serpent, to the devil, to wage war against the church. Right? That's the woman he's waging war against. The woman and the rest of her children. This is the saints, both Old and New Testament. He's been waging war from the very beginning. Right? The children are those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's believers. That's describing what we are, and who does he have as his enemy? Us. He wants to kill and destroy us, our faith, so that we go to hell. That's what he wants. That's what he wants for our families as well. So we have to resist him and overcome him. And then in chapter 13, it was given him to make war. Who gave it to him? God did. God did, God did for who's good. 
for our good, for our good, to test us, to test us. This is why, yes, Satan is an enemy, but he's not, he, he is a lion that is uh, roaming about, roaring, seeking someone to devour, but he's not outside of the will of God, and he does not have the power to thwart God. God has power over him, and he cannot do what God does not permit and allow him to do, what God does not give him to do. So though he is in rebellion against God, God forces him to be his servant and to do his bidding. So much for free will, right? He forces him to do that. And notice as well, he makes war with the saints. Makes war with the saints. And he has authority over every tribe, people, tongue, and nation. Meaning this present world. He has authority. He's the one ruling over this present world through the kingdoms of this world, through wicked rulers, and then they make war against the saints wanting to overcome them. Sending some to captivity, some killing with the sword. And then what do we have to do? Persevere. This is the call for perseverance. We have to persevere and overcome the wiles of the devil. So, well, is he a, a, is he a slight enemy or is he a great enemy? He's called a dragon here, right? And he's waging war against us. So do we need help? Do we need God to assist us? Do we need God to come and strengthen us? Absolutely. How are we going to overcome the devil without the help of God? There's no way. No way, Jose. It's never going to happen. So we need to pray that God would help us, that he would come to us in our time of need, strengthen us, and give us the power to overcome the devil. Give us the faith to overcome the devil. That's the victory, right? It is our faith that will overcome the world, the flesh, and the devil. So our chief enemy then, the devil and his demons, but also wicked men, right? Wicked men outside of the church, right? This would be the unbelievers, the pagans, the idolaters, right? All of those who are outside, who hate Christianity, they hate God, they hate Christ, and they want to wage war against these things. This is what we read earlier from Psalm chapter 2, or what we referenced earlier. The nations rage and the people's plot in vain. These are those outside of the pale of Christianity and outside of the church, and yet they are raging against everything that is good and right and wholesome. Isn't that true in our present generation? Oh, yeah. Many of our rulers are uh, atheists, agnostics. They don't believe in anything other than themselves and their own money and power. And they hate Christianity. They hate the Bible. They hate Christian morality. They hate Christian truth. And they're fighting against it. They're waging war against it. Well, who is behind them? Satan. But then they're being used as well. So we have two enemies there. We have the invisible, which is Satan, who is behind them. And then we have them, and they're a problem as well. And we need to pray that God would protect us from them, from their threats, from what they want to do to us. Isn't that what they were doing in Acts chapter 4? Pray for protection against these external enemies, these visible enemies who were wicked men. Wicked men coming against them, threatening them, that if you keep preaching the gospel, we're going to put you in prison. If you don't be quiet and quit speaking of his name, we're going to beat you. We might put you to death. So you better stop it. 
And what do they have to do? Pray, God, protect us. Protect us from these people. That's what the Apostle Paul was praying for in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, to deliver him, protect him from evil, wicked men, because not all have faith. So there are wicked men outside of the church who are enemies to us, and we need to pray that God would protect us from them. But also, as if that's enough, there are many tribulations, right? Isn't that what the apostle says in Acts 14? It is through many tribulations we must enter into the kingdom of God. There's wicked men inside the church, inside the church. And typically, who's the biggest threat? Is it the invader outside that you know is your enemy? Or is it the one who comes in unaware, who pretends to be your friend, who presents himself as an angel of light, but truly he is a messenger and a deceitful workman of Satan. And they're going to try to come into the church. So wicked imposters come into the church disguised as angels of light, presenting themselves as ministers of Christ, as brothers in Christ, and then they come in for what reason? To destroy us, to destroy us, lead us astray, right? Either through false doctrines or immorality, right? Doing these types of things. And we've got to pray that God would protect us from them as well. This would be like Judas Iscariot. He was a false brother who was among them the whole time. And we'll have this as well. Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. Verse 29 says, I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So there, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And even from the own body of elders, there will arise men speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So there within the church, there will be enemies that will rise up and we have to pray that God would protect us from them as well. So protection from all of our enemies, right? All of our enemies. So in all of this, when we're praying for his kingdom to come, we're recognizing that the kingdom of God must be built by God. If he doesn't build it, it's not going to be built, right? It's not going to stand, right? It will not succeed. He has to build it. He has to protect it. He has to preserve it, right? Only he can do these things. With so many enemies, with so much peril, how will we ever make it to the kingdom of God? Not on our own, right? Not through our flesh, not through our own strength. We can't do it. But with him, we can. With man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. We need his help. And that's what we're supposed to be praying for. For his kingdom to come in this world, in his church, in our lives, for God to protect us, to preserve us, to watch over us, to keep us, so that we safely make it into the kingdom of God. So we should pray for his kingdom to come in relation to its present, secret, hidden, mysterious way. But also, finally, we should pray as well for his kingdom to come in the full manifestation, in the full glory of his kingdom. 
we are to pray for Christ to return, for him to return and to subject and subdue all of his enemies. When we see people in rebellion against Christ, right, this should cause us great trepidation, right? Our eyes should flow with tears when we see the wicked breaking the law of God, when we see them rebelling against God each and every day. So it is good and right for us to pray for Christ to come, to return, and to establish his kingdom perfectly on this earth, and to subject and subdue and destroy all of his enemies and all of those who are against us. So we want it to come in its glory and in its power. Revelation chapter 22 Revelation chapter 22. And verse uh, 20. 22 verse 20. Says, He who testifies to these things says, Yes, I am coming quickly. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So there, the apostle ends the book by praying, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Yes, Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. And he says, Amen. He agrees. This is good. And then he's saying, Come quickly, right? Come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, please. Also, 1 Corinthians chapter 16. And verse 22. 16.22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. And Maranatha means come Lord Jesus or come Lord. So this is what we should be praying. For our Lord Jesus to come, because then and only then will God's will be done perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. In its present state, God's will will not be done perfectly on earth as it is in heaven. Because one, there are wicked men and they don't obey God. They're in rebellion against him. And then secondly, because even those who are believers aren't perfect. They still have the flesh and they're not able to perfectly do the will of God in their current state. So for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven necessitates the return of Christ. Only then will there be a kingdom of righteousness, right? A kingdom that cannot be shaken or moved. And this is the kingdom that we are waiting for, right? For this present world in the present heavens and earth to be burned with fire and for them to be replaced with a kingdom of righteousness. That's the kingdom that we wait for. That is the kingdom that is to come. That is the kingdom that we will enter into in the life to come. And we should pray for it to come quickly, for the Lord Jesus to come and to come quickly and to establish his kingdom. So in all of these ways then, when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, these are the things that should be in our mind, the things that we should pray for in relationship to this petition. Okay, so we'll stop there for tonight. And we do have some time for any questions or comments.